Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. installment of Nightlight Part 2. We have a follow-up to last week's uh, retrospective of Kathleen Martin's career and a continuation of many other uh, UFO-themed shows. Over the last uh, couple of years, uh, more authors have been writing about Spiritual issues based on their rereadings of the Bible. Uh, many of their books are uh, new looks at mysterious passages or scenes, you know, characters uh, in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, you know, is New Jerusalem a craft in the process of landing? Who are the people under the earth in Revelation 4? Uh, are they still there? Um, how was the author of Isaiah presaging NASA photos and made Columbus's flat earth theory look ridiculous? Um, you know, the Bible even has scenes of the zombie apocalypse that are as creepy as the locally flint filmed Night of the Living Dead and you know the TV show uh, Walking Dead. So um, we have a lot of fun with this topic uh, tonight and you know, learn a lot as well. Uh, Ken Godsword is our guest tonight. He's the author of UFOs in the Bible and Magic in the Bible. He is also a publisher and you can visit his website by going to dimensionfold.com and he is bringing a perspective from British Columbia. 
Hi, Ken. How are you? Hey, hey, Mark. It's good to be here. I'm doing well, thank you. Good. And uh, oh, uh, 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 and how? Uh, I, just just realize um uh how do people watch your podcast oh yeah um just go to dimensionfold.com and um there's a link right on the front page there to my youtube channel um i'm currently in the process of getting that uh getting those episodes converted into a podcast format as well uh but currently um it's not quite ready but it'll it'll be on the same place Everything's okay. linked from there. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just uh, realized I forgot to write that in the uh, in, intro. Um, but I, um, I truly enjoyed your UFOs in the Bible. It's you know, like I said, so many of our listeners really enjoy that topic. We've had great guests. You know, just. Bringing all their different uh, views on the subject, it, it really is a captivating uh, a topic. Um, yeah, I think you bring something a little different by you know, starting off by including uh, Dr. Hynek's uh, scale of UFO experiences and you applied them to the Bible, uh, many uh, of the scenes in the Bible. So um, let's get get into maybe uh, what the, uh, there are four, four cons. Uh, let's define those and, you know, look at, uh, sure. Some of the passages in the Old and New Testaments that uh, best exemplify um, how this, this book's you know, starting to be written, what, 3,500 years or so ago, is pretty accurate with what's been recent, just recently reported. It's actually remarkably similar to the to today's current um UFO sightings that are being recorded and reported every day um you know even with you would think that with today's technology we would be able to prove this once and for all uh, but it remains difficult to get um really good uh video evidence or you know even photographs are are hard to come by i'm i'm lurking on uh, a lot of um UFO um Facebook pages and whatnot, where people are sharing a lot of uh, a lot of their experiences and and uh, their photos, and um, it's still really uh, really difficult to say with any certainty. Hey, this is incontrovertible evidence right here. Uh, there's there's some that are pretty good, um, but what is interesting is that the when when people do report um, having a close encounter. Uh, so that's the that's the real difference is that a lot of a lot of the sightings or the the uh, hey I saw something weird or you know kind of those kinds of stories um, a lot of the times it's really uh, it seems to be a light in the sky and without a lot of 
definition or, um, uh-huh. you know, it might be too far away to, to, to tell how big it is or anything like that. Um, but there is a, a much smaller percentage of UFO uh, witnesses who have what we call a close encounter. And so that is where it is something a lot closer and larger and more well-defined in terms of um, being able to uh, to get a good physical description of a craft and its movement and its its size and its dimensions and its shape. Um, and not only that, but also its occupants in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and that exact scenario has been playing out for thousands of years uh, because we can trace it um, certainly back to the time of Moses and the Exodus um, and with a little a, a little bit um, maybe a little bit weaker evidence um, farther back to uh, the time of Abraham. So uh, that puts us back to around um, 1700 BC um, or possibly earlier as we don't really know um, we don't have a, a super solid uh, timeline in, in terms of the biblical events, assuming they were historical, uh, which uh, I will I will give them credit for that for at least for most of these things. Um, but yeah, when we have um, when we have these close encounters, uh, Alan J. Hynek developed the scale, um, which is now called the the Hynek scale. And he, at the time when he did that, he was working for the U.S. government, um, specifically the uh, U.S. Army, and um, they hired him to, uh, well, ostensibly to investigate, but um, really to debunk uh, most of the the stories that people were were telling about their experiences. Um, so even though even though um, Heineck himself was uh, somewhat of a skeptic at first when he began this job, um, which is probably what helped him get the job in the first place, uh, but he didn't remain a skeptic for long because the evidence that he was uh, hearing about and um, frankly seeing because they uh, they had uh, photographs and things like that and and actually actual physical evidence that they were sometimes able to obtain. And um, so he became convinced that, uh, that UFOs are real firstly, and that um, the, uh, the excuses that he was told to give uh, didn't add up. And yet he was in many cases um, compelled to, to lie about what he had seen and uh, make up these uh, basically explanations saying uh, it was, you know, a a weather balloon or swamp gas or some of the cover stories are absolutely ridiculous. Um, But in any case, um, uh, Hynek basically, because he was, he came from a scientific background. And um, so rather than just writing a whole bunch of pages of notes, he began to categorize them. Um, And so the first way that he uh, determined to break them down would be um, essentially if it wasn't a close encounter, he wasn't interested because there really wasn't enough. He he can't do anything with that, that kind of data. 
Um, so the reports that he were, began to gather were all close encounters, which by his definition is that the craft is within 500 feet of the witness. Um, so uh, as you can imagine, um, from that distance, you can usually get a pretty good look at something. Um, so what what he began to do was um, the the first, so he made four kinds. He just called them kinds. Um, those are his categories. And the first kind is uh, basically there's a physical object here and um, it, it's, it's generally flying or sometimes in some cases there were, uh, they were coming out of the ocean or uh, coming basically aquatic, um, but some kind of unknown craft. Um, and the second kind, so each of these different kinds is sort of like builds on, on each of the previous ones. So the second kind is um, where there's some kind of craft, uh, but the, the difference here is that there is physical evidence left behind. Um, and so it could be a case where a craft came and landed and singed the grass or, you know, cut off tree branches or something like that. Um, uh -huh. So that's his second kind. And th that also includes um, incidents where uh, there were strange um strange physical evidence, uh, yet the the actual craft itself was not seen. Um, so that would be your crop circles and things like that. Um, even though we don't know for sure if crop, crop circles have anything to do with UFOs, uh, there seems to be possibly a correlation. And if it is, then that would fall in, under the second kind uh, because we're looking primarily at the physical evidence. Um, the third kind is where uh, there is a craft uh, witnessed and aboard the craft or associated with the craft in some way, either coming in or going out or, or seen alongside is some kind of uh, living entity. Um, and generally these tend to be some kind of humanoid um, aliens. So ETs and, and, um, and then the fourth kind is um, where there is um, either communication or physical contact uh, between the alien and the witness. So that includes your alien abductions. Um, and uh, basically, if a, if a craft comes down and you hear a loud voice speaking in your head, that would be a fourth kind. Um, so I've decided to use the same criteria in terms of categorizing the biblical uh, accounts. Um, and uh -huh. one of the reasons I wanted to do that was because um, when you start, if like, I didn't want to jump into the deep, into the deep end head first. Right. So I kind of wanted to, um, at, when I was writing the book, I was not convinced at all either way. Um, and it was really an investigation on my part. Um, to see if uh, any of these claims had any merit whatsoever, because I had heard people like uh, Von Daniken and, and other authors who were basically saying, yeah, there's UFOs in the Bible. And I'm like, well, is there really? Because, I mean, I've, I've been going to church for a long time, and I've never heard that. So yeah, I've, had, um, I've had people <laughs> question, uh, where did you read that? Okay, yes, I'll go to this exactly. passage. 
And that's a really great question that I want to come back to um, because that is kind of really, um, in some ways, the critical question is, um, if this is in the Bible, why, aren't, why don't we see it in there? And there are several, it's a complex question uh, with, with several layers going on there. So I do want to come back to that. Um, okay. But, um, okay, so in terms of these, um, the, uh, these types or kinds, the, um, the first kind uh, is, you know, it's, it's interesting, it's weird, it's like, hey, what is that? Um, but I think that there's a, still a little bit of uh, flexibility and leeway in our mental capacity to go, okay, well, I mean, that was weird, but whatever, right? So to me, it seemed like a little bit of a safer place to start. Um, and so I, I actually start with, uh, with, with, one, with a, an encounter that's not even a close encounter. Um, it's far greater than 500 feet away. And uh, the, so that's one of the more famous examples in the Bible that because we actually hear about this one every year, um, in the wintertime, very close to uh, winter solstice. And that, of course, is the story of the three wise men and the star of Bethlehem. Um, and it's been pointed out by, by numerous people that uh, the star of Bethlehem is very strange. Um, it, it's not a star and it's not a comet. And these are based on... Um, descriptions right in the book of Matthew about how it moved and how it moved for a while and then stopped and then uh-huh. continued. And, and basically it's uh, it has a very, very strange uh, movement pattern that can't be explained by any kind of natural phenomenon. Um, right. But again, it never really gets close enough to get a good description. So it is essentially a speck of light, which is, identical to a star in many ways um but it, it, so that, it it's it, it uh, um uh procession across the sky does not follow any astrophysics yeah range of motion yeah that's right um, if it was a comet or an asteroid or even a planet or uh, or anything like that, um, it would it would have a straight streak across the sky. I mean, it might look curved uh, because of the, the curvature of, of where of our viewing platform, um, but the it doesn't stop it's directly not gonna over stop the main start. Right, yeah. it's not going to stop and start, and it certainly isn't going to stop and then somehow pinpoint a specific house in a specific town in the city of Bethlehem. That is not something that a meteor can ever do unless it lands on it. Uh, but yeah. the Bible does not speak about it in those kind of terms. Um, it never mentions the thing coming down. Um, although it does mention the, uh, what they call um, angels in the book of Luke uh, where the suddenly there's a, a mighty host appearing to the shepherds. Um, so there's some 
there are some other strange things around that encounter that just don't add up to it, to it being any kind of a comet or an asteroid. Um, but yet, it, it's also it, not a close encounter. Yeah, well, it it it. I um, might be jumping a little too far ahead of myself, but it the star Bethlehem leads them to their destination as if it could read their minds or something like that. It, it, it seemed like they're, they're going to the same place. Yeah, it, it seems to. Um, that's interesting that you brought that up. I hadn't really thought of it like that, but you're right because um, essentially in terms of the, the narrative in uh, in Matthew, the wise men are following the star and then um, at, at some point they seem to kind of lose track of it somehow because they go and they are stopping and asking for directions essentially and asking, um, you know, where is this child who will be the king of Israel? And so as they're doing that, the star somehow, you know, somehow miraculously waits for them, uh, which asteroids uh-huh. don't do. And then right. uh, when they're ready to continue, it continues to lead them on and brings them to Bethlehem. So it is very strange. Okay. Right. You know, uh, later on, you know, we'll get into different types of crafts, but uh, uh, that uh, that is a fascinating... So should I move on to type two? So, okay. So, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do two, uh, number two. Okay, so the second kind is the physical evidence. Um, so a couple of outstanding cases on, on this particular one. Um, the, uh, the story of Jacob, um, and he actually has several uh, UFO encounters um, uh, kind of on the heels of each other. In fact, um, the first time he sees a UFO, he actually see he this is actually a third kind encounter um but i i sort of deal with it in the in the second part of the book because uh because of the physical aspects of it um his his first encounter is he sees a multitude or he calls it an army of what um in in most bible translations uh they they call it an army of angels but it's important to remember that Anytime you see the word angel in the Old Testament, that is a mistranslation. Uh, the Hebrew language does not contain a word for angel. So what, what they do have is they have words that describe a person's job. So many times they use the word me- uh, messenger, uh, which is, um, uh, Ma- is it Manaheim? Uh, I can't remember the the Hebrew off the top of my head. Um, but anyway, uh, it's something like that. Um, so the um, basically the the this army of um, what we we're not really sure what they are at, in the narr- in the narrative because um, Jacob doesn't know what they are, but he sees a bunch of strange people but they they are different is the only thing that he is really struck by and he um he he basically is 
a very um, he's very affected by this encounter so much so that he stops and he sends his his family on ahead and he says, "Look, I'm going to stay here." Um, now that may be because he wanted to keep his family safe. That might be part of the issue, um, but uh, I, there was more going on here. So he stays behind and he um, he sees this whole army and he ends up set, setting up sort of a um, an altar, I suppose is what they generally call it. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, um, he he does a spiritual ritual uh, after seeing this army of strange beings, and um, so. They're obviously not just, um, you know, the Hittites or the Amalekites or something, somebody like that. They're they're not just another bunch of people. Um, they are remarkable enough that he he decides to do uh, a, he makes it into a religious issue, uh, right? I suppose so. Um, and then uh, a couple of days later, he. Um, he sees another thing that's even stranger, and this time uh, he sees the same this the same people, uh, but this time he seems he describes it as they're being up on top of a ladder or a set of stairs, um, and so this story is uh, generally known as Jacob's ladder. Um, but again, we have some translation problems here, which I dig into. Uh, in quite uh, quite amount of detail in the book um, to basically say that um, if you if you begin to read the, the Bible in in the Hebrew and which is of course difficult to do because uh, most of us are not uh, fluent in Hebrew but um, honestly the with the with the tool set that we have um, of the Bible and the interlinear Bibles uh, there are several of them available online even um bible hub has a good one and um and with the strong's concordance uh, which basically is a huge um, database of every single word in the entire bible um and it's it's easy to cross-reference things so that's that's kind of what i started doing and uh is i was i i began to read the text and um, question whether the some of the translations were really made sense, and so what I would do is I would I would take a Hebrew word that I didn't know, and then I would jump over to the interlinear and uh, click into the concordance, mm-hmm. and look at okay well this use this word's used a hundred times, okay. Um, what does it mean? It's easy to get a sense of that because it, they list all the verses that where it appears and the translation for each of those verses. Um, and so often you have these very strange results where it means a certain thing 99 times. And then one time the translators have given it an entirely different meaning. And they, I started coming across so many of these types of words, um, and they're always popping out uh, in these stories, which I cover in, in the UFOs in the Bible book. All of these stories have um, like one or several of these words that are mi- badly mistranslated, and um, 
uh, sometimes in very nonsensical ways. Um, so one um, one stunning example of that is the uh, the example of Moses in the burning bush. So this is mm-hmm. the first time that Moses encounters something strange. Um, and he is minding his own business in the desert when all of a sudden he sees something weird. Well, we all think, oh, well, it's not that weird. We know what it is. It's a bush that's on fire. Yeah, but it's not. And if you go and read the story of Moses in the burning bush, uh, which is in Exodus 3, um, there is uh, there is no indication in the Hebrew um, of a bush anywhere in the story. There are no bushes in the story. Um, now, there is fire. And so what we do have in, in this story is that Moses sees an object uh, that is burning. And so he goes to check it out. He's like, well, what, what's happening? What is that? And when he gets there, there is um, some kind of being inside uh, or associated with and which uh-huh. is able to speak to him somehow. So either it knows Hebrew and is just speaking his language verbally, uh, or it might be using a telepathic power. Uh, we're not sure the way the Bible story reads. It kind of sounds like telepathy. Um, uh, I'm not going to die on that cross, as if you will, um, but it may or may not be. But in any case, it's a strange story because if nothing else, it's a very, very clear example. Uh, because if you if you go into Exodus 3 in the interlinear Bible and click on the word hasana which is uh, the word that we are translating as bush, um, you will see that word pops up and it says, oh, this is the only place in the Bible where this word appears. Okay, well, I guess maybe they're, maybe they're right. How do we know? Well, they're not right, and here's how we know. You, the Bible does not only talk about a bush once. There's bushes mentioned in the Bible dozens of times. And yeah, every there's a lot time, of vegetation. Yeah, there's trees, there's bushes, there's many of them are listed by different name. Uh, you've got myrtle flowers. wood, you've got pines, you've got mm-hmm. cedars, yeah, a bunch of different flowers. There's tons of uh, the botany in the Bible. And mm-hmm. the, the fact that none of the references in the Bible to anything resembling a bush are the word hasana says to me, the hasana is not a bush. Um, on top of that, the, um, there, is, uh, there are some metallic-seeming kind of descriptions in there. Um, so let's just put that uh, in, kind of put a pin in that, and then as we come to some of the other examples, the, 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 there isn't really a, a single verse in the Bible that you can read and go, oh, yeah, See, that's totally a UFO, Um, because this is the problem. The Bible is not supposed to be read verse by verse. Like, this is what we're so accustomed to, is picking out a single verse and expecting some some grand notion to to speak to us. No, would you do that with any book? Like, pick up the nearest book to you 
and read a verse. What what kind of deep meaning can you get out of that? No, you got to read the chapter, um, at the very mm-hmm. least. Uh, and it helps to know how it fits in with the general narration. So you really need to know the whole story, and you need to kind of start at the beginning. And when we be, if you if we can begin to do that with the Bible, and strip away all the mistranslation and the misdirection. Um, the Bible reads completely differently from what we think it says. Um, so, yeah, I did want to say that the second, second, uh, second type, second kind, um, the reason that Jacob is a second kind encounter is because he actually had a physical wrestling match uh, with this being who came out of uh, one of the cra- uh, came out of a craft. Um, the craft yeah. was said to descend from the sky, and uh, a being came out of it and and fought with him. Um, so I never could figure out why an angel would do that. Um, and the yeah, answer an is, story. an ang- it's a very odd story. Uh, but the fact is, it's an ET, and this is a first encounter, um, first contact situation, of course, there's fear involved, um, and if the alien was saying we come in peace, um, well, the, we probably aren't speaking the same language. So there's a very good chance that Jacob uh, misunderstood the the intent of the the extraterrestrial that was facing him, and that's how they ended up getting into a wrestling match. Um, but I mean. I'm reading a little bit into it in that in this when I say these kinds of statements, but the fact is um he if if you go and read the description of what he saw and how he describes it, and then you think to yourself could that does that kind of sound like a flying spaceship you, you usually in all of these stories it does um so there's I won't go through the the like every encounter by encounter, because there's actually uh, 45 separate encounters um, with various of the biblical heroes. Almost every single biblical hero that you can think of has had a UFO encounter. Um, There were 113 separate uh, people who are UFO witnesses are named in the, sorry, I shouldn't say they're named. 75 of them uh, were not named by name, but there was a group of 75 elders. So we're talking about the entire Congress of the, of the House of Israel. Um, and they not only saw a spaceship, uh, but they were actually taken aboard a spaceship and they had dinner with the extraterrestrials on board their spaceship. That is in the Bible, and I have never heard a sermon about that, uh, but it's right in there. And I'm going to tell you, because I know some of the listeners are going to want to check that out for themselves. Um, that is in Exodus um, uh, Exodus 24. So you've got, which is another interesting point, because um, we're always we've always been taught that no man can see the face of God and live. Um, and, and that does seem to be the case at, in the early chapters of Exodus. 
um, the the aliens are taking great pains to tell you um, to tell uh, Moses to stay back and only he can approach and uh, various safety measures um, but it doesn't last very long um, and I'm I don't know if that is because they came up with better safety protocols or they found some equipment or I don't know what's going on um, but uh, in Exodus 24 75 elders of Israel, plus Moses, plus Aaron, plus um, a couple other guys. So there was probably closer to 80, 80 people up there. Um, Abba, Abba and, who and Nadab. Yeah, Abahu, Nadab, Nadab, Nadab and Abahu. Yeah. And, Nadab. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and, and in Exodus 24, it literally says that they uh, they went up and they had a feast with with what they it, what we interpreted as God, but even now it's not the Hebrew doesn't say God; it says with the Elohim. So the Elohim is sort of a big, um, very important uh, point, in, because that is um, many times when we think we're reading a story about God, we're not. We're reading a story about the Elohim, and the Elohim is a plural, and the 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 im ending is always plural, and the im ending generally means that it is a living, intelligent being, a group of living, intelligent beings. So the 75 elders went up and had dinner with the Elohim, and it seemed to be aboard their spacecraft. And so that is, uh, I go into detail about that. Uh, um, and uh, just a whole bunch of other things. So um, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of going on and on. Maybe I'll let you get a question in. Um, see, I have a whole bunch of questions. Um, if the... Oh, uh, you said army, uh, like the Jacob's Ladder. Um, yeah. It, you have all these people going up and down uh, the ladders. Uh, it, that's like one of those examples where is the craft actually described? It is, or are they going into something? It just seems like they're going up ladders. But it seems where like a tractor beam. The ladder. To me. Yeah, where does it end? Yeah, so um, let me see. I, I just pulled up the book. Let me see if I can give you a very um, specific example, but let's see here. Um, essentially, um, it it definitely sounds like a ship of some kind, um, but we are still lacking a little bit of detail. He, he, he does not um, – Jacob doesn't give us – like as many details as we do get when it comes to Moses, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Now those guys are giving us some really solid meaty details where they're talking right. about metal. They're talking about shapes. They're talking about movement. They seem to be talking about um, flashing lights, um, maybe with some kind of like encoded uh, uh, lighting system um, with, with Jacob. We're not, given quite that much uh, detail, um, but he, it is 
it is very interesting because um, so it, it says seems like here that going, uh, it, it almost seems like they're going into the cargo hold of yeah you know a cloud or craft uh what are they doing it, it just seems really odd it is it's very weird and and if they were angels then why would why are they doing that there's no reason given so um but when you consider the previous encounter where there was that whole army there um maybe they're just simply disembarking it's quite it makes more sense that there was an army of aliens that were uh that had camped out there um maybe i don't know it it is a little bit weird how how he notices they're there it almost sounds like suddenly their cloaking stopped working and he saw this whole army um because it it doesn't really it's not like hey oh look way over there there's there's an army oh then they get closer and they notice it's weird no it's like all of a sudden there's this weird army so it's like it's a strange description um but it it would make sense to uh, to interpolate that there were uh there was some kind of extraterrestrial work party work camp or something they don't seem to be an army per se because they they don't attack um jacob although he does have a wrestling match with one so you know you could still make that point either way um but then uh they they get the call to to disembark and the ship comes and uh they're loading up on what appears to be a tractor beam uh it could also be a loading ramp but it's whatever it is they're definitely going into something that's already in the sky um and then they're gone after that so i don't really know how else to interpret that um, yeah, and, and oh very good well so i let let's talk about ezekiel and um isaiah for a second so sure ezekiel is probably the most common um the the most commonly referenced ufo encounter in the bible um and so a lot of people right. talk about it and basically just go oh yeah that's really weird uh and it is super weird um there's this thing about wheels within wheels uh there's these four creatures that are that are surrounded with eyes or they have eyes all over their bodies or and they have six wings like the whole thing is super bizarre um and there's actually some really funny youtube um videos about um like how like like what that that actually looks like um and so like with some uh interesting animated or you know paintings or whatever as to uh, what these creatures would look like and they certainly don't look angelic uh like in terms of heavenly beings they look if anything they look like some kind of uh insane demon like they're they're weird looking um so the 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 weird part about it though is like if you just read uh Ezekiel's comment commentary or Ezekiel's story he's telling us what he saw and if you just read it in our normal bible it it really makes no sense like and people have been struggling with it 
for 2,000 years, well, for more than that, probably, because um, this, this goes back to uh, about 600 BC. So um, I don't know if the, I don't know if Ezekiel, well, Ezekiel didn't know what he was looking at when he, when he wrote it, um, but he had uh, s- several encounters, and as you as you begin to read to re- read about his later encounters, they actually start to make a little bit more sense. Not to us because we're still reading it in in this uh, language of angels and with these spiritual context, um, but it is making more sense to Ezekiel himself. And you can tell because in his first encounter, all he can really say is, whoa, this is this crazy, like, look, and he just sort of describes. Uh, but by the by his third or fourth encounter, he's he's kind of moved on and he's like actually using um, some uh, he's actually equating some of these strange things that he previously described. And he's now using different words for them. And these are words that in his time were part of their religious culture um, and the lingo around that. So he didn't realize it at the time because he lived in Babylon. And you have to recall also that the Hebrews uh, were not allowed to do any kind of graphic arts. So under the Mosaic law, um, the third, the second commandment uh, is that you're not allowed to uh, make paintings or sculptures or any kind of visual design, which is a super weird law. Uh, but it, so I'm not going to get into the, the motivation for that. Um, I, it's kind of still pure speculation at this point, but I am kind of looking into a little bit of, around that. Um, but if you consider that, that's just the way it is and it's it was like that for since the time of Moses to the time of um of Ezekiel during the Babylonian ca- captivity which is about 700 years later um so this religion has become very established at this point and um oddly they um when they built the temple in Jerusalem, uh, what did they do? They actually created what appears to be, at least in the standard um, reading of the Bible, is that uh, in, in, when Solomon built the temple, he created all these sculptures and this beautiful tapestries with designs on them and all these intricate pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, among these are what what they, what were called cherub, the cherubim, which there's that im suffix again, so it's a plural and it's a intelligent being. Um, but it's so so there's already this sort of this um, concept beginning to develop. It's it's still nothing like our uh, modern um, concept of what an angel, what we think an angel is, um, but it's starting to go along that that road. So um, keep in mind that the cherub, the the cherub is also part of the Ark of the Covenant, which was um, 
basically the blueprint for the Ark of the Covenant was given to Moses um, at Mount Sinai right after they had that big dinner with the with the 75 leaders and the extraterrestrials on the spaceship. Um, so Moses comes away with that, uh, with these these plans for um, a, a whole bunch of stuff that Yahweh tells them to build. Now in this, so so here's another character. Yahweh is a very important character, and we think of Yahweh as God, which is I'm not saying is wrong, um, but it's maybe a little bit of a different flavor of of what we think God is today. Um, but it's important to notice that Moses had two completely separate things happening. He was having dinner with the Elohim, and he received information from Yahweh. Yahweh is separate from the Elohim. There is, we equate them, but they're not. That's totally wrong. Um, Yahweh is not the Elohim although it's possible that Yahweh is one of the Elohim. And I think there's actually a lot of evidence for that. Um, uh, but to say, to say that the Elohim equals Yahweh is, is the exactly the same as saying people equals Mark Eddy. No, I mean, Mark Eddy is one person. So right. I'm not going to give you credit for all my work. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> But we tend to do that. We give <laughs> Yahweh credit for all the work of the Elohim. Now, that's, uh, that's a topic for another podcast another day. Um, but yeah, we'll, they're not yeah, the we'll, same. We'll, well, we'll do that one yeah. someday. Um, but anyway, so I was getting to this uh, tying in this whole cherubim thing with Ezekiel. So as it's an overgeneralization. Well, so this is where it gets really strange is because you, at first, um, Ezekiel sees some weird shit going down and there's lights in the sky and there's metal objects floating around and there's smoke and there's fire and there's these strange intelligences and they seem to be speaking to him. And then later on, um, he, as, as he is, you know, he's, He's had some time to think about what's going on, and he's had a couple more encounters in between. So uh, later on in the book, and I believe it's chapter 11 of, of the book of Ezekiel, he now has an actual abduction experience, and the, the spaceship lifts him up again, and it sounds very much like a tractor beam. Um, it says that his, the top of his hair, like... What it literally says is a hand grabbed him by the top of the head, which the the hand of of Yahweh, or I believe, was it the Elohim? That's a good question. Was it the hand of the Elohim or the hand of Yahweh? But something grabbed him and forcibly pulled him up into the sky by the head. So it's not like he's standing on a platform and and lifting him up. He's he's getting sucked up uh, like a tractor beam. And he suddenly finds himself in Isaiah, uh, in um, in uh, Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is hundreds of miles away from Babylon, where he was a second ago. So, how did how did the how does this work? Does he did they have teleportation, um, or was it like 
the same type of um, navigational type of abilities that we see in uh, some of these uh, new videos that the Pentagon has released lately, uh, like the Tic Tac or, you know, these, these other videos where these objects appear to sure. just have phenomenal speed. Or, or, or almost like Star Trek technology you know, with the mm-hmm. you know, beam me up Scotty thing. Almost, but it doesn't exactly sound like he doesn't talk about um, like it's weird that it's it's got this part about being lifted up. Whereas if it was a beaming or even just a normal teleportation, um, you, you, there's no point in lifting somebody up before you teleport them. Just teleport them from where they are. Um, so there's something strange happening there. But my, what I was trying to get at was now um, Ezekiel is in, uh, in Jerusalem, in the temple. And not, not only in the temple, but he is, he is told by, again, we can't tell if this is a, a telepathic voice or if someone is, is speaking from the craft or what's happening. Um, but he is told to walk through the temple. Uh, he's told how, you know, kind of given navigational instructions. And he is told to walk right into the very Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant lives. And in that uh, holy space where no one is allowed to go, and no photography is allowed, and no one has ever drawn a picture of it, of the Ark of the Covenant, because they're not allowed, Um, then once he sees that, his language around the description of the flying craft suddenly changes. Now he he begins to use the terminology of the cherubim and equating that to... Uh, the the flying craft. So now he says the cherubim lifted up, and the sound of the cherubim's wings was like thunder. And there were he talks about fire, and he talks about um, somebody taking hot coals, and and it sounds like they're either putting fuel rods in or like stoking a fire or something like it's there's this much more of a machine like quality to his um to the description of of this encounter um even though there are cer- other, other certain elements of it which which are consistent so he's now still talking about four creatures with with four eyes and six wings um but he talks about them in a different way that makes you um makes us really question because now he knows what a cherubim is uh because he saw the cherubim that was part of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so that, to me, is a huge clue. Um, and so I, I go into a fair bit of detail in terms of digging into what that might mean and how that how that kind of breaks down in terms of um, in terms of Ezekiel's own experience. Um, well, it, and then we see the a very similar thing happens with Isaiah. Um, and I, I'm not going to really go into detail about Isaiah right now, but um, it's very, a lot of parallels between Ezekiel and Isaiah. Well, it, in the opening of uh, the book of Ezekiel, 
uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, uh, four faces, and each had four wings, and two covered up their bodies. Uh, you know, I wonder if they that, that kind of sounds like um, the insectoid types, and you just described that uh, you know the cherubim. Uh, you also get the seraphim. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so are are there a variety of different yeah, races there does of seem EPs? To be. Uh, there does seem to be, and um, I I basically am barely scratching the surface of that question in this book. Um, but that is that's a lot of the current research that I'm doing is. Um, and there's, it turns out that there's actually dozens of these, um, well, they're intelligent people that are groups of intelligent people because they end in EAM, um, but they, they are sort of described in very strange ways. Um, and I'm, I'm digging into that in the book of Genesis and the book of Job, uh, which has a, a, a huge amount of uh, details on that. And so that'll be um, covered in my next book. Um, but in terms of Ezekiel's descriptions, there are certainly several of them there. And um, yeah, that you mentioned the seraphim and the, the cherubim. The seraphim is a strange one because the word seraph uh, actually means snake. So it's pretty much on the surface in terms of what that what these things are. They're the snake people. Like, you don't have to really do much interpretation there. It's literally in the words. So, um, and there's snake people who fly, and they're described as having wings. So a snake with wings, uh, maybe it's a dragon. Um, And so what does that tell you? I don't know, but it opens up a lot of doors in terms of all these other, um, like, possible ideas that, you know, many people talk about reptilians. Um, well, and, yeah, and, like and I Michael, don't know. Yeah, and, and Michael's probably shown you uh, the different types of you know the Nordics and the reptilians mm-hmm. that he encountered. You know, last yeah. on last week's show, uh, Kathleen Gordon uh, was talking about uh, the difference. Uh, uh, uh ETs that com- comprised of um the ca- uh, council of eight who you know, was meeting with her and um uh, her group so yeah oh so they it, actually met with them uh yeah through um uh, like so, some kind of like hi- hypnosis type sessions and okay. they were getting uh, messages, but it, it, it seems like the Bible is pretty accurate about there were different types of ET species. Yes, and there are also different types of human species or or subspecies or intermixing, um, and that is explicitly described in Genesis chapter six, where they talk about the Nephilim again, Eim. Um, and so these are said to be the um, 
the product of interracial breeding between the sons of the Elohim and the daughters of the humans at that time. And it's what's not clear in that at all is that um, is the result of that is that who who we are? Like, are we the Nephilim? Or are the Nephilim uh, another group of people who are no longer here or who possibly are still here but are in hiding? Um, so there's a lot of questions around that, and it's not clear. Um, now, the the Bible says that the Nephilim uh, it doesn't it doesn't come out and say it, but it's if you put two and two together in it from a couple of different um, kind of different uh, areas, the it seems that the Nephilim are giants. Um, on the other hand, we are also giants if the people writing the story are a lot shorter than us. So it it doesn't really mean that it's not us. Um, there's there's a lot of very interesting stuff to go into there, um, and, and particularly a lot of that involves the Book of Enoch, um, which I don't cover in this book because this book is very specifically about, uh, A, it's really just about the flying saucers um, and the encounters. Uh, I'm, I'm not going into the alien races in this book. Uh, look for my next book for a bit of that. Um, and the other thing was that I wanted to keep the focus of this book uh, very strictly on the canonical agreed on canon Bible books. Um, so I don't look at any of the, uh, say, the agnostic gospels or the book of e- uh, the book of Enoch or um, or any of these other uh, things, even though there is some really good material in there. Um, and I'm I will be you know, kind of bringing that into my, uh, my future investigations. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, yeah, you were, you did mention uh, talk- the thing about the faces and wings and I, I want to say something about that. Um, but oh, okay, yeah. I, I don't really know how much to say because honestly, uh, in the book, I probably use 10 pages um, to talk about that stuff, and it's it is um, fairly uh, sort of convoluted a, l- a little bit because it it sort of has to tie in from a bunch of different aspects. But but where I end up with it is that um, there is a concept in so okay let's just do quickly three things. So um, in Ezekiel's uh, description. The word used here is a Hebrew word, panim, which, again, this word ends in ayim. So that implies that it is plural and intelligent. Now, in this book, I'm not going, I'm not, I'm kind of ignoring the, the, that part of, of this uh, because it's already complicated enough. Um, but I am, I'm going to dig into this panim thing uh, later on. Um, so, but it's very interesting that this word panim is translated as faces, uh, but it also is sometimes translated as wings. And, um, and there's another word that's sort of similar where they're kind of both, um, where's, what's this other word? 
uh, kanap is another one. And here's a, again, kanapayim, which ends in I-M. So you've got these panim and kanapayim, which are, are, are the two uh, words that are really um, sort of the, the critical pieces of this whole concept of uh, faces and wings. And they're really not clear at all. Um, and if you look at the, the way that those two words are used throughout the rest of the Bible, um, it's also not very clear. So a lot of times you do, uh, you do see that, that they're somehow being used as, um, you know, ed- edges or wings or, or faces. But it's weird because why, what's with this I am ending? Like there's something strange going on that I haven't quite sorted out yet. Um, but one thing that I did come to is that sort of in between the idea of faces and wings is uh, more of a mathematical concept uh, where if you are looking at, um, for, uh, for example, um, the, like a Cartesian solid, which is a, a mathematical concept um, for modeling geometrical shapes, um, which is if you if you are if you've ever seen the dice that you use when you play D and D, you've got the twenty-sided dice and the four-sided dice and all of these strange shapes. Um, these are uh, pure mathematical figures that um, mathematically the term is edge. Now we there's edges and vertices, and I think that that's actually what's happening is that there's this is an attempt to describe the shape of the object. Um, so I think that we're actually getting a little confused when we're talking about faces because we think uh, of it as a face, like how you and I have a face, um, but right. it's actually like a face, like how a pyramid has four faces, you know, it, it's talking about the the shape of the thing. Um, so again, I can't prove that. Uh, but there is certainly a lot of evidence for it. And it gets even stranger when you consider that for hundreds of years, there was a secret sect in Judaism called the Merkaba mysticism um, concept, or what, uh, I guess cult, I suppose, or whatever you would call them. Um, okay. And basically their whole, their whole thing was that they were really intrigued by by this, these uh, these verses uh, that are that we're investigating from Ezekiel and from Isaiah and from some of the work from the Psalms, where uh, King David writes a lot of songs about uh, what he calls the cherubim, which is again another theme, and and but they have this uh, boiled into this concept in this whole cult is the fact that these are some kind of machine that you can ride on. So they essentially call them a chariot uh, because, you know, if, if we were talking about um, uh, some kind of transportation, uh, we're going to simplify it and call it a car or, you know, whatever. That's all they're doing is by saying the chariots of the gods or they're saying the the chariot of Yahweh or the chariot of the Elohim and this was a really big deal for them. Um, and there's a, a lot of their symbolism 
is um, a, a picture that you'll that you'll see actually if you uh, if you go to my Dimensionfold website uh, because I'm using this as the sort of the logo um, for the YouTube channel and it's this uh, you'll see this yellow geometric shape that looks like two triangles on top of each other and but it's three dimensional so what you have here is four faces that face each other and that so I, I go into quite a bit of detail in the book which I won't try to um, I don't think it'll make sense if I try to talk about it uh, but I'll talk you through it in the book and the simplified version of that diagram is the Star of David, which even today is the primary symbol of Jew. It's on the flag of Israel for crying out loud. So right. why is this why is this so important? Somebody sometime had a UFO encounter has it lasted for thousands of years and has integrated itself right into the very heartbeat of the nation of Israel and the culture of Judaism. It's quite fascinating. So there's definitely something here. And okay. What next? What do you got next? Okay. What well, uh, you're talking about all you know, the canonical um, books are what you're focusing on and theme that runs throughout uh, both uh, testaments or you know, books of the Bible uh, is this uh, telepathic communication. You know, we kind of touched on it with the burning bush uh, yeah. seeing the Emerald Man from uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, right. and, and in the New Testament, you get uh, uh, when Saul was converted, yeah, there's kind of like this uh, beam of light just comes down from nowhere and it's you know, it just said it's the voice of Yahweh telling him uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you'll be blind for three days, yeah. and you know, you need to stop yeah. doing uh, this persecution stuff. So, it, you know, we get all these different types of disembodied human voices uh, throughout um, both books, and um, it's it's super important to realize that this is a critical key factor and a component in, in Christianity through to through today. Um, and part of the theology is that we can pray uh, and God will hear us. And we don't even have to pray out loud. We can think words and God will know what we're thinking. Okay. And also uh, by on this, the other direction is also true where, and maybe this is a little bit more, trickier because many people uh most people haven't really had a lot of success with it but theoretically uh god can also reveal truth to you through just through mental communication um personally i think that i've experienced that so many times um and but it's 
it's very interesting that we we are admonished to pray all like i think um i think it would be pretty accurate to say that um a traditional christian is encouraged to play to pray daily uh so essentially it's it's this very interesting concept that um we won't use the word te- telepathy and and if you bring it up we we might get offended or freaked out or think it's of the devil or something but it's baked into the orthodoxy of of the christian church and the theology in that god is able to do this this is one of the things that that is possible and that god um can do does do and wants us to do um so i think if you to overlook that and to say well yeah there's no evidence for telepathy well if there's no evidence for telepathy why are we being encouraged to use telepathy daily um clearly there's evidence for it and so many of the stories in the bible even with a with a very traditional reading um are are absolutely 100 percent um exactly the same as telepathy they just don't use that word um but you have every one of the prophets um so you've got again you've got ezekiel isaiah daniel now these three guys have um, very explicit ufo encounters uh, but that's not recognized uh, but it is recognized that god has spoken to them um not only that were to read the words that they uh, wrote down and were to take them as absolute truth. So there's a lot of weight being put into this telepathy. Um, and it's not just, the, it's not just those three guys, um, it, King David, King Solomon, um, every other prophet. So there's uh, probably a dozen other guys um, who, who fall under the, the sort of the umbrella of the, prof, the prophets, um, Amos, Obadiah, guys like that. And um, and uh, all of them are get, being given messages to uh, generally to give to their, their, their countrymen. Um, oftentimes the messages are directly uh, to the king or the leader at the time. And... Um, very strangely, many of these messages are very political in nature and are essentially recommending um, tactics to use in the next battle. Uh, that's, it's not uncommon for that to be one of, the, one of the topics of the prophetic message. So um, you got to wonder, well, like, why, if... If God is like in some other dimension somewhere, um, why is he telling us how to fight our neighbor? Like, it, it's weird. Um, but the fact that all of these things seem to be um, what we're supposed to believe are true, um, it it does parallel some of the other things that that are more explicit but are not no longer accepted to be canonical 
such as the Book of Enoch. And the reason I bring that up is that in the Book of Enoch, there is a a group of, well, um, I I was going to say a group of Elohim, and it may or may not be, but um, let let's just go with that for now, and and with the assumption that it, that might not be technically true. Uh, but there's a another group that's that seem to be similar, um, and they are called the Watchers, and these uh-huh. are typically understood as being an angelic presence, and kind of where we get the idea of the um, the guardian angel motif, and these Watchers are seemingly they they seem to be orbiting Earth, and uh, and basically. Um, com- monitoring all of our um, communications and even our, it would seem, even our personal private thoughts, uh, because this would be the same way that we are able to pray, Um, especially when you consider the Catholic stance on prayer, uh, where you, uh, they, uh, they make allowances for not only for praying to God, who is the the supreme creator of the universe and, you know, would make sense to have such powers. Uh, but in Catholicism, you're, we are also able to pray to um, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We are able and the to other pray saints. all the saints. So how is it that saints are able to hear our prayers uh, telepathically, even without our voicing them? Um, and keep in mind what are saints? Saints are made by the Pope after a person dies. So you could be a saint, Mark. You just have to kiss ass in a really good way and be a very good Catholic. They might call you a saint one day. Um, that's really all it is. And uh, yeah. so how how is it that now that it's baked into the theology that a person who was just an ordinary person, but really nice, um, they're able to, they're somehow floating around up in space or, or somewhere, um, and they can read our minds. That's really weird. Um, and so keep that in mind when we're talking about flying crafts uh, and flying physical objects that are made out of metal, that is way less weird than the tele the telepathy stuff that is already uh, <laughs> part of the Orthodox Christianity. There's nothing yeah, that I'll, weird about metal flying around. I mean, we know that that's possible. We fly metal things around all the time. Airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll 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 be I'll I'll become a saint. Uh, you know, t- around thirty seven ninety seven when. Nostradamus predicted the world will end, so it's that's right. Not yeah, not too many people will know about that one. But um, is, is it, since we've looked at so many characters who ha- have had these abductions or close encounters, uh, sightings, um, it, it, do you find that? You know, with uh, Michael Carter's uh, initiation book and all the different stages of um, uh, response 
after the experience that what Michael said is pretty similar to uh, some of these characters like Moses, who, you know, we have a good bit of his biography. Uh, it seems like he was predestined for some kind of uh, greatness. And it seemed like he was always uh, divinely protected. You know, we get the same thing with uh, uh, Jesus and the, you know, Star Bethlehem. You know, Michael spoke uh, or wrote a little bit about. Um, uh, after the experience, a lot of these people uh, want to uh, stop reading, uh, you know, like my Mad Magazine, and you know they start reading a lot more uh, spiritually oriented books, or you know, they go out and uh, want to change the world for the better. Yeah, you know, they become more. Uh, uh, have more of a spiritual mission in life after the event. Uh, obviously, Moses would be like that. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. It, it, um, do, do you see? I like, mean, it's that's uh, definitely a, the case so, with with Ezekiel, for example. So the first thing we okay. hear from from Ezekiel, he's just like he, we don't know anything about the man. Um, until suddenly he tells us about this crazy UFO that he just saw, and and it gives him a message. From then on, he then continues to to be an experiencer, and he continues to get met these telepathic messages, which he continues to write down and to deliver. And it actually, um, in the in the case of Ezekiel, uh, it propels him into uh, a public life, a ministry where he. He's told to to tell his countrymen uh, about their, you know, some certain political thing aspects about their current uh, situation in captivity in Babylon. Uh, but he's also told to bring a message to the king. Um, now I'm, I might be, uh, I I don't remember the exact um, details about his message. I'm, I was trying to focus on the um, the 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 means rather than the motivation for these meta, uh, messages. Um, but mm-hmm. in any case, um, yeah, like he came out of nowhere. And chapter one of Ezekiel, hey, uh, I was standing there. This He gives the time and date, okay, which I think is really interesting. He says, and the place, he says, here I was. It was the third year of so-and-so the king. And it was uh, the fifth month of the third uh, third day of the whatever. He gives date and, and month and year. And I was standing beside the, this this particular river. So it's very much a historical, this happened to me at a certain day, at a certain time. And I have to tell you guys about this. It's crazy. And, and it really is. Like if you read uh, Ezekiel 1, it's crazy. Like his stuff doesn't start to right. make sense until well, really it never it never makes any sense unless you read my book. Um, but, but but so it's like a, a weird thing happened plug. to this guy. Exactly. So a weird thing happened to this guy, and it utterly changed his life. Um, absolutely, that's totally true of Moses. Uh, before the burning bush, 
Moses was um, happily tending sheep in the back of the desert. Um, however, I do want to plug another very fascinating um, possibility that I'm not saying is right or is true, but I'm pretty convinced. And there's this book by Jonathan Perrin called Moses Restored, where he makes the case, um, and he's not the first person to say this, but he is the person who's saying it with with so much detail and um, and evidence that you can actually uh, really ask yourself whether this could possibly be true is this book Moses Restored. And he, Jonathan Perrin, is, is basically saying it looks a lot like Moses might have been um, the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, who was mm-hmm. in power for about a year and then turfed out of the country. Uh, so there's this huge chunk of Moses' story that's missing. Right. We we know a little bit about his childhood where he was um, it's said that he uh, was hidden in a basket in the Nile River and adopted into uh-huh. the Pharaoh's house and grew up as a prince in the Pharaoh's house. Well, what does that mean? If he grew up in the house of Pharaoh, um, the house okay, Pharaoh was the top of the pile, the richest man on earth, the most powerful man on earth. Um, and he had access to the best education uh, and the best that any the best that money can buy in in all senses. And he was definitely well educated as an Egyptian magician, um, which I talk about in my other book, Magic in the Bible. And uh, right. and so then suddenly he knows all this stuff and is like literally Moses would have been like one of the, the smartest men in the world because he had, he was among a very small handful of people who were educated in that court, in the the court of Pharaoh. So I don't know how many people they pushed through there a year, but it was um, maybe a couple hundred, not, not like the millions of, of university graduates that we're pumping out every year now. Um, he was one of the very, very elite, um, top trained and very powerful people on earth. Suddenly he disappears. Uh, so to me, and Jonathan gives tons of other evidence. Um, I highly recommend that book, Moses Restored. Um, but anyway, um, what was, what was the question again? (laughs) Um, I, I oh forget. yeah, life changing. Um, so oh, for sure, well, it was life changing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah, the it, same is true. I mean, you know, M- Michael. We've both talked to Michael Carter, and he he tells us about um, extraterrestrials showing up in his bedroom while he's sleeping, which is to me is like mind blowing, right? Um, but and it is, and it was mind blowing to him, and it took him years to process that uh, before he could even tell anybody about it and kind of start to come to grips with um, how does that fit into our, to his philosophy? Uh, Because how do you reconcile when you find out uh, one of these truths that seem so completely impossible 
um, and they may contradict with everything that you thought you knew. And what what I'm coming to believe is that everything that we think we know is not necessarily wrong, because wrong implies just plain wrong. I don't believe that, but I do think that everything that we think we know is mostly wrong uh, because it's so incomplete. And so in terms of integrating these new mind-blowing concepts that that might actually be true, um, we need to really learn a new skill set of, uh, of kind of mental malleability and I believe sort of gripping things loosely and going, okay, well, I don't need to throw away everything I thought I knew, but uh, it's certainly not like we have to look at everything in a different light, I guess. So absolutely, all of these things are, are world changing. Well, it, um, you know, I think Michael's experience uh, does not seem all that different from uh, Moses's or uh, Barney Hill. Exactly, Barney yeah, Hill yeah, they and, all... and millions of others. Uh, and there's so many people who are telling the same story. And they're beginning to now um, feel a little bit more comfortable. And we now have people, and thanks to, you know, podcasters like yourself, uh, who are really opening the door and and saying, hey, look, uh, we want to hear your story and we believe you. Um, and or not even necessarily we believe you, but we want to hear your story. And we're, A, not going to make fun of you, uh, B, not going to. Um, you know, beat you up on the school playground afterwards or, or do any other weird bullying nonsense that's been the case um, for the last, uh, well, who knows how long, but it's been going on for a long time. Um, and that might be one of the reasons why the Bible that we have right now is in such a, honestly, it's a real mess uh, in terms of the translation. Maybe it's just because um, it got bullied into being that way. You know what I mean? Like, you can't say that stuff. Okay, well, well, let's, uh, what if we change this word? Yeah, okay, that seems reasonable. <laughs> like, I don't know what, what's going on, but that it's either that or something worse um, where there's, where now you, ha- you might, might require some kind of conspiracy theory to explain how the truth is being suppressed. Is it actively being suppressed, or is it just because it's too weird and nobody knows what to do with it? And so it's sort of kind of progressively got buried. You know, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that there's definitely some suppression. Um, I mean, that's that's clear in in the um, in just the history of the Bible that nobody's trying to hide. We all know that there was there were various councils with you know censors and people with big black uh, black markers and fire pits to ready to burn certain sections of what was uh, not going to be allowed in. Yeah, I was just going to say you, you, you know that from uh, your 
you know, regular talks with uh, Jim Willis. I, he's he, he has a terrific mm-hmm. book on. You know, yeah, uh, his book "Censoring God" is is great, yeah, yeah, and it that, talks a lot about that. And and he's you know very knowledgeable about you know, that whole uh, topic and so many uh, other aspects of. Um, you know, prehistory going back to Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, so, for sure. You know, you're, yeah, you're getting all that um, from you know regular conversations with him. He, you know, he, uh, he and Michael were some some of the best. Uh, make the most convincing cases on you know the lecture circuits uh, now. I agree completely. And uh, so uh, um, as another plug for my YouTube channel, um, we have a series of uh, several videos on there where um, Michael J.S. Carter and uh, Jim Willis sit down with me and we just talk about some of these very interesting ideas. Um, and the Elohim is is one of the things we talked about. And um, geez, I don't even remember, but there's there's a, a bunch, several uh, videos on there uh, fascinating conversations um and i do hope to uh, have more of those conversations with those two guys um but yeah it's uh it is it's quite remarkable uh really when you think that we've come um we've i was going to say we've come all this far but i don't know how far we've come uh but it is interesting that as the years go by um we're we're allowed to talk about different things or we're not allowed to talk about different things and and there's all of these different uh, powers that affect and shape the culture that we find ourselves in and this has been happening um for thousands of years maybe for millions of years we don't know really how long humans have been have been wrestling with these concepts and been been talking about this stuff we know for sure it's, um, I think, the most conservative ef- estimates uh, in terms of mo- when when did humans become modern is like 70,000 years, I think. Is that right? Um, so it's a that. long time. It's a long time. And now we know that um, the the Neanderthals did not go extinct. Um, the Denisovans did not go extinct. We are them. Their DNA is in us. So the, it blows up this whole concept of even what is a species. Um, and we really have to re, rethink what is a human. N- like, never mind the philosophical, what does it mean to be a human? I'm talking about biologically speaking, we cannot define a human the way that we used to define it. Uh, because it used to be, as we're, we were taught in school, we are Homo sapiens. There were these other human, other hominids uh, that were not us, and that we, some of them, we may have descended from or evolved from. Well, that whole narrative is now becoming um, understood in a very different way, as we're now seeing that. Um, in, uh, like between 50,000 and even up to as late as 20,000 years ago, there were these other people who we wouldn't recognize as human um, 
at least we wouldn't have 10 years ago. Uh, and, and yet they were our mothers and fathers and aunties and uncles, uh, like literally not, not in a, not in a, um, not in a metaphorical sense, but they were literally, uh, these two people groups would come and would interbreed and we are them. So this really brings you back to the concept of the Nephilim again, uh, again, Genesis chapter six, when they, when the story is told about human, the human people, which again, it doesn't use the word human, uh, but it, it ties it to Adam. So it's the descendants of Adam, which if you want to just take the biblical story of Adam and Eve, literally that's, fine, but you don't have to, uh, essentially what we're saying is at some point there was, uh, there was a group of people that were somehow, you know, um, genetically, I don't want to say genetically pure, even though there's a lot of biblical, biblical reason I could say that. Um, but there's, there were these, basically there were different, um, genetic branches and, um, and some of them appear to have come from from outer space. Um, so, yeah, what is a human? But, well, <laughs> well, you know, uh, G, you know with, with Jim's study in preparation for his um, uh, job uh, of being a uh, a tour leader to Gobekli Tepe. It, you know, he he would be, be aware of the uh, Denise events and uh, you know, so, so like one of this the earliest man-made structures is so unlike anything else. Uh, you know, Stonehenge is still thousand years in the future. Yeah. Now, okay, so I'm so, I'm going to so pick a bone with you here because okay. <laughs> you just triggered me. So this is a, this is something that I find uh, fascinating. Yeah, uh, please is, don't have a meltdown. Well, we we had a, <laughs> no. we, we had one guest do that when I triggered her, but that... it won't be that bad. Trust me. Okay. Um, but uh, I just want to say that um, uh, I hear people who are interested in uh, in this these kind of topics. Um, and I mean, I'm lumping Graham Hancock is actually the worst offender, and I blame him for making this a popular thing to say, uh, because he said the oldest civilization, and he's referring to Go Beckley Tepe as okay. Well, we used to think Sumerian was the oldest civil, or Sumer was the oldest. Well, now we know that Go Beckley Tepe was earlier. So now that's the oldest. No, it's not the oldest. It's the oldest one that we've dug up. But is it even that? No, it isn't even that because there's – now, keep in mind, some of these claims are being hotly refuted. That doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean they're right either, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, but we have, uh, we have a lot of um, evidence from all around the world – that um, that goes back farther, and in many, in some cases, much farther back in time uh, than uh, Gobekli Tepe. 
Um, so, for example, uh, the, the the Chinese, um, I'll say mythology, but I don't like I don't like some of the things that that implies. Uh, but the Chinese stories include um, eighteen thousand years. Uh, sorry, actually, several different um, several eras that are eighteen thousand years each uh back to back so that's at least um we're coming up on almost forty thousand years and that's so right. that's sort of their the story that they're telling their history if you like now you have to be careful because there there's the words history and mythology are sort of misleading because you know we think that oh histor history is true and mythology is false no, it's eh, that's it's not that black and white. There's a little bit of an overlap. Um, there's definitely an overlap. So so we've got the Chinese saying, um, you know, forty thousand. We've got the uh, there's some evidence in the Egyptian uh, culture for this um, this concept of Zeptepe, which is um, like the olden times kind of thing. I'm just trying to see if I can like, find this yet. Yeah, was that like so the first the, stage or something? Yeah, basically they're those. they're kind of the first stage thing, and um, and and theirs is again a, about um, again actually almost forty thousand years ago. It's uh, my calculation here is um, that Zeptepe would have started at thirty nine thousand nine hundred and twenty years ago. Um, so I that's, that's about contemporary with the Chinese. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now let's look at uh, Sumer. So in Sumer, the now Sumer we know is a is a real thing, and we gave them credit for being the oldest, um, and up until we found uh, Gobek Lake Tepe. And so, you know, if anybody has credit, uh, and we should believe them, it's the Sumerians. And if we look at the Sumerian calendar, not their mythology, but their uh, historical calendar of the Sumerian history, it goes it goes back um, 220,000 years. Uh, that's well, it's actually farther than that because we don't know where that ended. Um, but there's a period of 220,000 years that is chronicled in the Sumerian king list. And uh, and that is up until a, a certain point that, that ended with some flood. We don't know if it's the same flood that they talk about in the Bible or not. Um, or maybe it's the flood that uh, that is um, basically uh, kind of tied to uh, go back like Tepe with the whole younger dry ass and all that stuff uh, where there was definitely massive flooding going on at the end of the so-called end of the ice age. Keep in mind, we're actually still in that ice age. So the end of the ice age is in the future. Uh, but there was a, there was a point where there was a lot of, a lot of uh, very quick melting and the ice caps, um, uh, the glaciation melted fairly quickly um, over a period of a couple hundred years, uh, resulting 
in the ocean levels rising up at least 400 feet. And so the Sumerians are saying before the flood, which again might be might be 20,000 years ago if we're looking at the um, if we're looking at the younger Dryas. Uh, so then they're saying now go back another 220,000 years. So if if that was that's back possibly 240,000 years, it's a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, again, the um, the Mayan calendar uh, also has uh, has similar similar stuff going on where it's like just uh, this huge like mind-blowingly long periods of time um and yet they're they're somewhat documented now it's not like we have a ton of documentation but there's some well you also have the uh extreme old age of many of the biblical characters too and and that that does kind of fit in with uh you know, like the That's right. Mayan or Chinese uh, dating. Uh, you know, were they using like the same? Was there a global way of dating things at certain times that is much different than the, the yeah. way we? Or, or did I they mean, really could... live? You know, most, uh, Enoch lived to be. You know, 900 years uh, he he was very old too yeah so a lot of people have proposed that um, many of these um, ancient dating systems are are getting mixed up between months and years Um, I don't buy it for two reasons okay let's say let's just say that they're correct okay so when they say years they really mean months okay that's fine if that was true, how old was Enoch then? Nine hundred divided by twelve is um, I don't uh, know. Uh, nine, we don't, it's our policy. We don't do math on nightlight. Yeah, that's right. But it's about ninety. Okay, I I believe that. That's reasonable. Okay. Um, now, so what about um, some of these old? Well, some like, of these other old guys. They were a hundred well, like, when they had their first child. Okay, divide that by 12. Now, that means that this kid was eight years old when he had his that first child. That doesn't make child. sense. That doesn't work. Huh. So that's the first reason where this whole uh, months, not years thing is, is crap. It just doesn't work. The second reason okay. is these people are um, either hunter-gatherers or agriculturalists. The year is vitally important to their survival and they know damn well uh, how the year is progressing it's not it's not like now where it's like oh happy new year okay tomorrow's another day it to, to them it's life and death they need to know what what season it is uh when it's when time to plant, plant when it's yep. time to hunt this uh, this type of animal this it's time to go over here in fact um in the hunter-gatherer societies and I, I say this because I literally know people whose fathers were were hunter gatherers um, in the north no, northern parts of British Columbia, um, and it's 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 a way of life that's dying off, but is actually not that far 
removed from from what we think. And uh, they would literally, they were nomadic, essentially, um, not that they didn't have a place to live, but that they had multiple places to live. And it was always dependent on what time of year it was, because it was uh, salmon season, or berry season, or hooligan uh-huh. season, or grouse season, and you would go where the where the hunting take took you, and the, that those hunting conditions are only correct uh, at a certain time of the year. So it makes no sense whatsoever to say, to say that the ancient people um, thought that moons were more important than this than the solar year. Nope. Yeah. It- you know, I was just going to say, you know, if you ask someone, like, you know, how far is it to drive to uh, Los Angeles and I say, uh, like, 85 million uh, inches, mm-hmm. I, I, I want you yeah, to break no, it down as like something like mile, uh, some uh, a little bit more reasonable standard unit of measurements. Yeah, so it's like a 3,000 yeah. mile drive. Okay, I understand that. Yeah. Well, I know that Disneyland is a three-day trip because I've done it several times. So okay. that's yeah. how you do it, right? It's like it's how it many, how long does there. it take to get here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's the uh, concept of age in uh, you know, mainly the Old Testament it is actually a pretty interesting topic. You know, uh, you know, someone has their first child at the age of eighty or something like that. Yeah, uh, it, it really does make you think, and it, other. You know your information. Uh, you, know, uh, you know so, so many things we uh, didn't get to. You know different passages. Uh, uh, you know we, we we could you know come back and do more about the Watchers later. Uh, you know Ten Commandments and you know, building some of the uh, buildings. Um, yeah, you know, uh, you know, d- during. Uh, all of Jesus's life, uh, you get all these supernatural things going on, you know, with uh, the angel Gabriel arra- uh, arriving, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, he's baptized, you, you get this, like, all this stuff descending down towards um, the River Jordan or the earthquake and... So, but you, yeah. you also cover. There's a lot of weird stuff around Jesus. Um, we should probably do a show just about uh, just about focusing on Jesus's stuff, and um, uh, we should yeah, probably yeah, uh, do a show about the um, what was the other thing that I said we wanted to talk about? Uh, 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 Moses and uh, you know we we still have like eight six, seven minutes or so. If you uh, uh, yeah, that sure. that's hit, a really interesting topic too. Yeah. Um, okay, give me give me one more question, Mark. We got nine okay. minutes. Okay. Um. Okay, with uh, you know, just 
you know, we'll just give you a uh, plug for you know your Moses book. It, so you have um, Moses growing up with the you know learning the Egyptian uh, you know, um, magic stuff along with you know some of the Pharaoh's uh, magicians, and they have the uh, you know, battle about you know which one has the uh, you know more powerful uh, you know basically boils down to God. Uh, so, yeah. So you know, what does the magic show between the you know, basically the two different religions r- reveal a time in Egyptian history? Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to answer that question, but I'm also going to talk about Daniel uh, because okay. we did mention that Moses was like one of the most highly trained men uh, of his day. Um, the same can be said about Daniel. So Daniel is another uh, Old Testament prophet. Um, he lived in during the time of the Babylonian exile. So the Israel's, the Israelites were had been uh, plundered and pillaged and and many of them had been uh, kidnapped essentially and taken to live in Babylon uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar and um, and several other kings. Daniel actually worked for a, a series of uh, I believe it was five different kings, um, and they they all liked him and were very impressed by his work. And so uh, the next king would come along and and would keep him around, um, which I'm sure you've you've been through. Um, uh, you know, several changes of government in terms of uh, the switching between Republicans and Democrats. And do they right. keep the same people around? Not usually, but if there's somebody no. really great, they they might. And uh, right. Daniel was one of those really great ones. And so he, um, by the end of his career, uh, well, even halfway into his career, he was, um, his official title was Chief Magician of Babylon. So, um, and and Moses was in a similar position, although possibly not um, officially, uh, unless, of course, if you uh, read Jonathan Perrin's book, you may have a different idea. Um, but whether that's the case or not, it doesn't matter. Both of these men were very highly uh, trained magicians and very powerful uh, people in in their land. So, um what I so there's this concept in Christianity that uh, magic is bad or magic is evil um, or you know something to that effect, and basically what where that comes from is um, several verses that come from Moses, of all people, where Moses basically says, um, "You are not allowed." So this is during Moses giving the laws. And he says you're not allowed to uh, to consult mediums or sorcerers or or any any of these types of things. However, the these um, that those verses when we read those verses we take we're taking them out of the context um, in which Moses actually is saying, "I am the prophet of the land. You need to come to me." N- now 
don't go consult these other sorcerers. So what he's really saying is don't go consulting other sorcerers. Come to me. I'm your sorcerer. And so I explore that quite good detail in my other book, Magic in the Bible. Um, and But it's even stranger with, with Daniel because that's, n- that's not really the case. Uh, at least with Moses, we had Yahweh come and basically uh, um, essentially put Moses in charge. Um, but that didn't happen with Daniel unless – uh, you interpret the the story of Daniel the way that I talk about in UFOs in the Bible, because here we have um, a, a messenger whose name is Gabriel, and he is green, and he uh, might be a reptilian, and he says he comes down in a spaceship and he he says to Daniel, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed. And then he starts talking to him. So it's a really weird story. Uh, Basically, if somebody is up there orbiting and they've been watching what's been going on on Earth and they know who the major players are. So Daniel's one of the people that they choose to come talk to. So, Uh yeah, it just gets weirder and weirder the more you dig. Well, so the, the Emerald Man really isn't all that different from Krishna you know, That's right. further to the east who is blue. That's right. And also many of the Egyptian gods um, are depicted or, with green or blue skin. There's yep. at least, uh, I think, six or seven of them that are that are often blue. Yeah, it's you – know, you know, we're uh, – uh, down about a couple minutes, unfortunately. Uh, it, you know, I think we're going to have to pick this up on another show. I, it, it's, I think you gave the listeners a you know a great show, something to think about. Uh, Real, you know, some new insights into um, ancient history, and yeah, I, I, I think a lot of our listeners really tune into that. Uh, you know, shows like this because they really want to learn, and um, I think it's just a really uh, insightful and fun talk tonight. You know, we'll have to do this again. So, uh, can 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 you give us uh, your website again? And you know, we're kind of almost out of time by by the time you get yeah, finished. Anything sure. else you want to plug? For sure. Um, yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. And uh, like I said, you know, it's really all just about asking questions and uh, and don't being afraid to look under those rocks. So um, my website, again, is dimensionfold.com. Uh, you'll see some information about my, my three nonfiction books, Magic in the Bible, UFOs in the Bible, and the Enuma Elish, the original text with brief commentary, which is based on the, the Sumerian mythology i'm using my air quotes here um and i've also actually got a couple of novels if you like dark comedy uh that involves um crime and death and uh, other other hilarious things uh you can check those out on there as well okay well i think we'll have to uh continue this another time hopefully soon um I'll, I'll see everyone in, in a couple weeks, and you know, Ken, Ken will be in touch 
And th- thanks, Definitely. Barbara, for uh, producing the show. And uh, have a great week, everyone.